everybody and welcome once again to the Tomorrow's Tune In Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Marshall, and this is show number 18 for the month of March 2009. Today on the Tune In, we have two interviews, and we're going to be having two interviews for the foreseeable future here on the Tune In. But today we're going to be talking first to Stephen Allen Payne, who has the upcoming book Grail Pages, all about collecting original art. And then we have a second interview with Eric Houston on his book, Comic Book Podcast Companion, which, of course, I am a big part of being with the Tomorrow's Tune-In podcast and also my own podcast, The Collected Comics Library. But before we get to that, I want to thank everybody who came out to see us at the New York Comic-Con. I know everybody with Tomorrow's had just a wonderful time meeting everybody and participating in all the forums and events that went on at the show. And uh, we just really thank you for your continued support here at Tomorrow's Publishing. I want to remind everybody to go to the website now and download the 2009 catalog update if you haven't done so. You can get a free hard copy also via the mail. Just go to the website and request one. It's that simple. And of course, for all the news, please subscribe to the Tomorrow's blog. You can do so by subscribing with your favorite RSS reader. And it's really the best way to keep in touch with all the happenings here at Tomorrow's Publishing. Right now, let's get to the upcoming releases for the month of March. And as always, dates are subject to change. So come by the blog to see if there's any updates from time to time. Starting us off this month, Alter Ego number 84 for $6.95. It's 100 pages and it is due out in stores March 11th. Alter Ego number 84 features the unique voice and vision of Steven Skeets behind a previously unseen Jim Aparo cover featuring Aquaman, which if you haven't seen it yet, come by the blog, it's pretty cool. Interestingly enough, part two of this interview will appear in back issue number 33, which is coming out on Wednesday, March 18th. So you want to pick up uh, Alter Ego 84 and then back issue 33 for sure. And a lot of you guys pick up all of our magazines. But, you know, if you are interested in a uh, Stephen Skeets, definitely pick up both of these. As always, Alter Ego is edited by Roy Thomas and Back Issue is edited by Michael Urey. But that's not all with Back Issue number 33. Uh, that book, of course, is always six ninety five and 100 pages. And the blurb on it, let me read a little bit of it. Get ready for action, angst, and acne as the teen heroes crash Back Issue number 33 with a cover featuring the Teen Titans by Mr. George Perez. This issue features a whole slew of teen heroes, including Firestar, Kitty Pride, Nova, Legion of the Superheroes, James Bond Jr., and many, many more. Going back to March 11th, we have Brick Journal number 5, Volume 2, the Spring 2009 edition, 895. This is 80 pages. Full-color issue number 5 takes you into the LEGO building community with event reports from around the world, including... Lego Welt, I think it's Welt, Germany, and also the Mindstorm's 10th anniversary at Lego headquarters. Brick Journal is always edited by Joe Mino. Next up on Wednesday, March 18th, we've got Modern Masters Volume 20. Hard to believe that we have 20 volumes of Modern Masters now. It's very cool. This one is featuring Kyle Baker, which of course we've talked about before on the show. This trade paperback is $14.95 and is 120 pages and is edited and written by Eric Nolan Wethington and George Corey. 
Next up, we got the Jack Kirby Collector number 52 for $9.95. It'll be 84 pages, and it is always a tabloid format. This issue spotlights Kirby Obscura, and I know I've talked about this magazine before in previous podcasts. And just a quick reminder, the front cover of this magazine is inked by Don Heck, and the back cover is inked by Paul Smith. Very, very cool there. This book is always edited by John Morrow and is due out Wednesday, March 18th. Next up, we've got draw number 17 for 695, 80 pages. Draw number 17 has a feature article on Brian Lee O'Malley's Scott Pilgrim. And as always, this book is edited by Mike Manley, and it is due in stores March 25th. Please remember, if you come by the website at tomorrows.com, you can get 15% off all orders. And don't forget, you can get electronic editions of these magazines as well. So definitely take advantage of that. That's how I am reading a lot of these magazines lately. Lastly, for the month of March, we've got Grail Pages, original comic book art and their collectors by Stephen Allen Payne, which is $15.95, 128-page trade paperback. It's due out Wednesday, March 25th. But as we talk about in the interview, it may be held back a week or two into April. So like I said at the top, you know, dates are always subject to change. Uh, but, uh, you know, it'll, it's definitely coming out in the next few weeks. So definitely take a look at it. And definitely a book that I can't wait to get my hands on. It's going to be very interesting. And so if you want to learn more about it, let's get right to the interview right now with Stephen. And I'll catch you on the flip. Okay, we're here with Stephen Allen Payne, who is the author of the new book coming out from tomorrow's Grail Pages, original comic book art and their collectors. Stephen, thanks for joining us here today on the TuneIn. Not a problem, and thanks for including my middle name. I always love that. <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about what this book is and what Grail Pages is all about. It's uh, collecting hand-drawn original artwork, correct? Correct. You know, I um, and it was something that was born out of necessity for me, because as I mentioned in the book, and I go into greater detail there, of course, I had lost my job, and I ended up selling some comic book artwork. Now, I hadn't collected comic book artwork since I was a kid. I, like most people, was a big fan of comics, and I got an opportunity to see the original art at a convention, and it kind of overwhelmed me because, as we all know, comic books were printed in very poor printing manner. There was it was cheap paper, bad ink, and you didn't really get to see sometimes what great artists a lot of these people were. People like John Summer and Gene Colan and Jim Steranko, some of the people that were around at the time when I was reading comics. And uh, when I got an opportunity to see the original art, like I said, I was overwhelmed. And I bought some many years ago, but didn't really think about being a collector, didn't even know other people collected. And then when I lost my job, through various circumstances that I detail in my book, I ended up buying a couple pages of comic book artwork and selling them on eBay. And through doing that, I found out that this wasn't just a sole attraction of my own, that there were hundreds of people who were deeply involved in collecting some of the original art, sometimes purely for nostalgia, and sometimes because they felt that, like I did, that the art was, the art was amazing and underappreciated. So is this a relatively new phenomenon then, or has this been going on for a number of years? I've, through, through writing the book, I found out it's actually been going on for quite some time. Uh, it, it, the prices, the high prices you see now didn't really start until the advent of the Internet. Mm-hmm. However, prior to that, in the 80s, there were a lot of people who were 
just getting the collecting bug or finding out, like me, in stages how that you can get a hold of the original art. And um, they went after some of their favorite artists at that point. So I'd say it really kind of got its legs under it in the 80s and didn't become a little more popular until the advent of the Internet. Now, how, how does one go about getting into a hobby such as this? This seems like a very expensive hobby to begin with. If you're going to go out and start collecting Jack Kirby right away, or do you start out with more of the, the newer artists, like a, like a Matt Fraction, you know, Iron Fist or something like that? How do, how does, how do you get started in something like this? Well, you know, it's, it's the best way possible. You go after the person you like the yeah. most. I mean, I was a big John Buscema fan, a Gene Colan fan, so the very first page I, I bought was a John Buscema uh, page, uh, uh, you know, a Gene Colan page. So you go after who you like. Uh, yeah, price is daunting, but uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's a better idea to spend a couple thousand dollars on a page you really want opposed to fritting it away a hundred dollars at a time on someone that you don't really admire mm -hmm. and is is that the kind of the game you kind of you buy the art and some people will wait for it, it to appreciate and then sell it at an auction house or on ebay or, or at a convention maybe yeah people a lot of people do that i mean there are of course the registered buyers i mean the registered sellers the people like anthony snyder and and uh mike berkey and albert moy but there are also individuals who have understood that this is a market that appreciates, regardless of our economy. And they have bought art, they've hoarded it, and they've sold it years later when it's become uh, a little more expensive. But for the most part, the true collectors, even if they sell to help support their hobby, and that's what a lot of people do, they, they buy three and sell two and keep one, uh, they, uh, there are going to be those pieces that they're not going to let go. So quite often the one they put up for sale was the lesser of their uh, collection. And you showcase a, a number of original artwork in the book, correct? Oh yeah, we've got a ton of stuff. We've got a lot of we've got a lot of art that hasn't actually been seen in, in, in the marketplace or or on in any of the websites where people display their art. I, I contacted a few people who were a little bit reluctant to show their art, but they sent me scans of it, and I see it's beautiful pieces. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, these have not been seen anywhere for quite some time. And you, do you showcase your personal collection here too? I do. I have a few pieces of my own. In fact, I got a chance to, during the book to interview Gene Colan, and uh, we talked about one of the pieces that I had on my wall at the time. And who else do you interview besides Gene Colan in this book? I got to talk with, uh, on the artist side, uh, Ernie Chan, Tony Dezaniga from uh, people who work with Gene, uh, John Buscema on Conan, uh, I talked briefly with Roy Thomas, but I got to talk in depth with Steve Englehart, who wrote Captain America many years ago, uh, Jerry Conway, who wrote just about everything years ago, went on to work for uh, work in television and do Law and & Order and Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Mm -hmm. um, got to talk to Dick Giordano, Bob McLeod, a lot of people. For me, where does the name Grail Pages come from? Is that a hobby term for this, collecting? Well, you know, you know uh, <laughs> it's actually my eBay name. Oh. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I know that's a vanity piece, I guess, but also it, I compose the name meaning a lot of people referred to these uh, pages in that Arthurian manner. They said they were chasing their holy grail. So I just, uh, just quite simply, I just took, you know, your grail and their pages of art, and I just put it together and became grail pages. And, uh, it worked for me as an eBay name, and I referred to certain things as my grail page. And I've since seen other people on websites and such put it together and say, well, here's my personal Grail page. So the phrase kind of uh, kind of warmed its way around with one or two people. And I said, you know what? I, it works as a title. It, it 
everyone who hears the title asks the question immediately, what's it about, which is what you want a title to do. You want people to be interested. And uh, I don't know, I couldn't come up with a better title. Well, it seems to work. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't argue with success. Now, not only do the, the comic books seem to getting a lot of publicity when it comes to original art, but also comic strips. Uh, and do you find that to right. be on the market as well? Yeah, I, um, I've always loved, like I love with most people, I love the peanut strip. And I, I was kind of naive a couple years ago, thinking, well, maybe I can get one for a couple hundred dollars, but they're well into the $10,000 range. Mm. But yeah, a lot of the comic strips have, uh, have popularity. Um, some of them, of course, are drawn by people like Neil Adams, we did Ben Casey years ago. But going further back, Milton Caniff, who did um, Terry and the Pirates, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the comic strips also are gaining a certain degree, a, a degree of popularity. As I said, it's just it, comedy book art is a very much an American art form. And unfortunately, like a lot of American art forms, it's underappreciated. Mm-hmm. And there, there are always these tight groups of people who support their, these hobbies, who recognize it as, as something important, as something interesting, as something uniquely American. And um, hopefully the book will help shed a little bit of light on that, give it a little bit more acceptance. I know a lot of guys go out and not only do the comic, they collect the comic book art, the original art, but they also do sketching. Uh, sketch, collecting sketches is huge right now, it right. seems. You know, and, and that's kind of an offshoot. You know, it's original art, but it's not you know, published. It's more, it's more personal. But uh, it right. seems like you know, going to convention, and whether it be uh, produced art like what that you're talking here or or sketching is just off the charts popular right now. It's like it's 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 a niche within the niche of comic books, and right. uh, you you know there's so many little offshoots right now, including in, including in many ways podcasting is in a way too. Right, and you know what you what you're talking about with the sketches. I, I talked to a few people who have filled up sketch books, going from convention to convention, and having a different artist draw on a different page a particular sketch or a particular character. We even featured some of the sketches that they had in the book. Yeah, I've got two sketches myself, and uh, boy, I would I, never give them... Who's the artist? Uh, I'm just local artist, really. Um, but, um, you know, it's just it's just great to have, you know, just, right. to, just to help them, show, you know, throw them a couple of bucks at a convention and, 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 uh, and hang it on your wall. And, you know, my son loves it. You know, he's got Flash and Batman up there, and it's just great. So... <laughs> Sounds like they said it puts you in the collector category as well. Yeah, but nothing, you know, I don't have like a, a Ramita Senior or someone like that hanging on my wall yet. So, <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't have a Ramita Senior. I, <laughs> maybe after I sell the few copies of the book, maybe I can get a nice Ramita Senior Captain America page. But uh, right now, it's kind of out of my grasp. Yeah, it seems like that would be a pretty hot name, or a Jack Kirby would be a hot name. You know, some of the older oh, yeah. gentlemen that have been in the business for quite a long time, or or have passed on, really, which is sad in a way. But you, they're they're you know like everything when when people pass on, their their value goes up because it's not going to be produced anymore. So I know I'm hoping to pass on before a Grail page is released. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get a signed copy from you first. Yeah, that's yeah, that'll happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll be signing along after my death. I'll be like the Tupac of uh, Grail Page. There you I'll go. I'll just pass on, but continue to produce work. What's the outlook for for this hobby then? Where do you see it going in the the next couple of years? That's interesting. I um, I mean, a lot of collectors have almost put together museums. I I don't know, and and that's the best answer I can give because there are so many possibilities for where it could go. It could get greater acceptance. Uh, it could stay as, as a more sheltered hobby. 
I think that I'd, I'd love to say the prices will level off, but I don't think they will ever level off. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to say because so many people are hanging on to the artwork once they purchase it. That's not going to stimulate. Obviously, it doesn't stimulate trade, so you, you begin to think maybe the hobby will grind to a halt. Maybe people will get the pages that they want. They will keep them. And essentially, the trading will be done, except for the modern art. You know, here's a question. Who owns the original art? It, it would be like a company like Marvel, or would it be the artist? You know, it, it's, it's, no one owns it, basically. No one owns the it. Artist, yeah, the artist drew it, but they drew licensed characters, and they sold it to Marvel. So the artist is out of the game. He's been paid for it. The company reproduced the artwork, so the company essentially has done everything they want with it. They started returning it to the artist in the early 70s, and essentially, no one can actually own the character. Well, I shouldn't say no one. The the artist can't own the character, but the artwork has been returned to him. He has no use for it. The company no longer has a use for it. So it can just be sold as a free object. So I don't know. I don't really know whether there's actually a true ownership on it. Okay. In which case, I'm going to someone's house right now and take some art down because no one owns it. But, uh, yeah, I don't. I, so essentially, it's kind of in a, uh, I guess, an illegal gray area. You know, it's been used for what it was produced for, and the artist has been paid for it. So essentially, whoever buys it, I guess, owns it. That's interesting. So when you go to a convention, you're buying it really from the artist, then? Yeah, from the uh, from the artist often, or from as uh, one of the one of the uh, sellers of art. You know, the Anthony Snyder's and the Albert Moyes. I see. They're, yeah, they, in fact, a lot of them work with the uh, with the artists and will sell their art for them. Do you see this becoming more predominant that the artist wants to sell his art as an extra way to, to make some extra income then? Yeah, I've seen it a lot with some of the uh, the newer artists. In fact, um, sometimes, and I was talking to Dick Giordano about this, we were talking about how some of the art almost has the art that's being produced almost looks like posters. A lot of the artists now are a lot more savvy about reselling their artwork. For them, it's a very viable way to make a couple of extra dollars, whereas the guys in the 70s were just, they suddenly got their art back and they said, well, you know, I'll sell it, I don't care. Now a lot of people look at it as a real market. Some artists like Alex Ross have their own website where they sell their art as soon as they've drawn it. Some artists deal directly with some of these uh, art retailers and they just immediately put their art on the market. They look at it as a, as a viable market. It's, it's, a, it's a viable ancillary market. You produce the art, and you can also resell it and make a few extra dollars. You know, another thing that I see, and looking at uh, collected editions and you know, just the solicitations coming down from a number of different companies month to month to month, is that companies are making more coffee table-type books to showcase their right. art and original art. And whether it be from a, a DC doing a doing a Vertigo book of the James Jeans covers the fables, or you know an Alex Ross type book, or you know showcasing these art pieces uh, is is more prevalent these days than you would have 10, 15 years ago. So there's definitely more of a, a hobby when it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah, and with the influx of all these uh, comic book-based movies, it's given comic books and comic book characters a greater acceptance. Mm -hmm. So now you can go into a Borders Books and you can find one of these graphic novels on a shelf at Borders Books. And it's given it more acceptance, it's given it more crossover. And of course, to the companies that produce the books, it's it's greater sales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great to see, you know, just as extras in in a collected edition like a Hellboy 
library edition. We'd look in the back and you see the sketch pages, but then it's another thing when you go to the convention and you see the full blown, you know, I guess it would be 13 by 17 print, you know, the original print of these. And uh, 11 by 17. Or 11 by 17, I'm sorry. And, right. uh, you know, then you really get to see the, uh, the, the fullness of the, of the piece. Yeah, you get to see the actual labor that went in. And uh, recently I was at a convention and uh, Albert Moy was selling a, a cover that had been drawn by John Buscema. And it was still in pencil, even though the cover appeared. Oh, that's cool. I remember seeing the cover. And what had happened was that John drew this cover and it got lost in the mail. Oh. So he had to redraw it from memory. And that was what was published. Well, you know, months later, the page appeared at, at the anchor's house, Tom Palmer's house. And uh, Tom Palmer just held on to the uninked page for years. And uh, Albert had it up for sale. And it was great to see the amount of detail that John Buscema put in this. This was a finished pencil cover that oh, he had done. Brother. And just amazing detail he put on it. I so much wanted it, but the $12,000 scared me off. So. Yeah. <laughs> brother. It seems also that you, you see these more at uh, the bigger conventions, more than the smaller conventions, which... In a way, it's kind of too bad because you want to get these pieces out in front of in front of people, you know, to showcase the original art. But are you seeing it come to the smaller hobby, uh, the smaller conventions, or is it still at the big bigger conventions where you can buy the the best pieces? I think the bigger bigger conventions are still W ones. You know, San Diego, New York, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia. The bigger the bigger conventions are going to be the ones that are going to draw more of the retailers. Uh, simply because, you know, they, they have to pay for their weekend trip out there. They have to pay for everything. They want to go for a bigger market where they know they'll make more money. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, I, uh, even here in Chicago, Mike Berkey hasn't really attended it in the past couple of years. He's flown out maybe for a day, but he hasn't gotten the table because he says it just, you know, it, it hasn't paid. He hasn't been able to pay for his ticket. Right. So he just comes out on his own, doesn't get a table, and uh, showcases a little art on the side. Anything else you'd like to add for your book? Uh, please buy it. Please buy it. Well, <laughs> everyone, please buy it. Buy two copies. Tell your friends. Uh, you know, it's just a, it's just a good a good opportunity for people who are interested in the hobby to take a look and see what their their friends have, and and it's filled with stories. You know, I interviewed a lot of people, and everyone had stories about how they collected. And through sharing the story, sometimes it's interesting for me. It was interesting to see that some of my passions weren't unique. As I said in the beginning, I thought I was unique in this, and it was just nice to know there are a lot of other people who felt the same way, who had stories similar to mine or stories that were vastly different but very interesting about how they collected the art. And it just gives a real history of the hobby itself. So if you're an avid collector, it's great because you'll probably recognize a lot of the stories. And if you're just getting into it, it's a good insight into why people collect. And I, th- I hope that was a question I, I sort of answered, why people collect, you know, oh, reflect sure. some of their passion about it. Yeah, that's the, you, you hit on one word that I thought for this book when I first saw it, and that is unique. There's not a whole lot of books, certainly like this one, and it is a very unique hobby within a unique hobby. And uh, I can't wait for this book to come out because, as, as you know, like I said, I only collect a couple of sketches, but uh, the whole uh, genre of collecting original art really intrigues me. And uh, I can't wait for this book. It's expected to come out March 25th, and it will retail for 15.95. And Stephen, thanks for being on the show this week. Oh, and and tell where can people find you? Is there like a forum that that uh, guys hang out, or where people can talk about their original art on the in the internet? 
Yeah, yeah. There's a good website called ComicArtFans.com, and uh, a lot of people who have collections are displaying it on that website. And uh, I've got a couple pieces of my own displayed on there. And anybody who wants to email me can uh, look my name up. I'm listed there, and they can uh, shoot me an email. I'm always happy to talk to people about collecting. Excellent. Thanks, Stephen, for being on the show. Not a problem. Thank you. Next up is my interview with Eric Houston about the Comic Book Podcast Companion, which will be $15.95, and it is due in stores on May 20th. All right, we are here with Eric Houston, and Eric is the editor of the new Comic Book Podcast Companion. Eric, thanks for being here today. It's a pleasure, Chris. This is kind of fun because a few months ago you interviewed me for the book, and now I'm interviewing you for the book. That's right. It's uh, turned the tables on me. That's right. So I have to ask, uh, to start out, why do this book in the first place? What, what made you do this book? Well, you know, I, I got into doing the book just because I was listening to podcasts myself. Uh, I had started listening to them a couple of years ago. Uh, I started listening to them especially while I was at work. I had kind of a data entry job at the time, and comic book podcasts were a great way to distract myself while I was entering numbers into an Excel spreadsheet. And as I, you know, listened to more and more of them, that sort of comic collector mentality kicked in where I started wanting to know more about the people who were involved in the podcasts, how the show started, what went on behind the scenes, what they were like off mic and things like that. And at the same time, I was reading a lot of Tomorrow's books, magazines like Back Issue and the Modern Masters series with all of those really in-depth interviews. And I just thought to myself, I, I really wish that I could find in-depth interviews like this with these people who bring me these podcasts every week. And since no one else had done it, I thought I might as well give it a try. So let's take a look at how, how did this, uh, did you contact, I mean, obviously you contacted me for, for my podcast, but looking yeah. at the others, where did you start? Like, where did you, you know, this is the first podcast I'm going to go to, and this is what I'm going to focus on. Where, how did that process happen? Well, it started It started with the podcasts that I first started listening to. I think the first podcast I had ever listened to was around comics. They, when they did their interview a couple of years ago with John Byrne, there was an ad for it on Newsarama. And that's how I initially discovered podcasting at all, was, was through that ad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I sent them the first email, even before I pitched the book, just to feel out if anyone would be interested in participating in the book. I sent an email to them, and I think to Comic Geek Speak and a few other places, just to see what the reception was going to be to the idea. Uh, and then after I pitched the book, I sat down and did an outline of ideally who I would want in the book, trying to mix together a combination of the most popular shows, mm-hmm. uh, as well as shows that I thought were, were very good, but maybe deserved a little bit more recognition. And at the same time, trying to keep that combination so that everybody brought a little something different to the table perspective-wise. And once I figured that out, I started sending out emails and getting in touch with everyone. And everyone was really excited about the project. Everyone was very receptive. Oh, I know. I was really excited when you contacted me. I was just flattered that, to be involved. And, you know, I, for my perspective is that not, not only do I do the Tomorrow's one, which is kind of an obvious choice to put in the book, I guess. I mean, I could I could suck really bad, and you, you may have to still put me in. But, I mean, I try, and I know all these people that try. I mean, whether it be John Suntress or the guys from uh, Panelologists or the Crankcast or Augie or Comic Geek Speak, I mean, everybody who you focus in this book, 
is they're they're all committed to quality and not just putting right, out a, a, just the show just to do it like you know some roundtable shows are out there to do. I mean, I think listening to uh to Derek Howard, uh, he said on his podcast late, lately that there are up to two hundred and forty comic book themed podcasts or that touch on comic books. I do feel like, I mean, there are, there are a lot, and I wish I would have had room in the book to touch on more podcasts, but as it was just with, with space and especially with, since I wanted to go so in-depth with the interviews, uh, there just wasn't going to be room for everyone, mm-hmm. but quality was definitely a factor, and I think that the people who, like yourself, who have been putting out a podcast every week for a couple of years now, week in, week out, without fail... Uh, if you're not at the same time committed to quality, I, I don't think you can do it. Mm-hmm. And so, especially, I, you and Augie are the two who have been doing shows the longest who are in the book. So I think you guys started just a couple of weeks apart. Mm-hmm. And it was very important to me to have a couple of guys in there who did have that sort of perspective of podcasting over time, who had done it for so long. And I mean, you you mentioned already that you were, how excited you were to to be involved in the book, and I'm just as excited, if not more so, to have had you. How was this book broken up? You you just go chapter by chapter, podcast by podcast kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's just um, it's podcast by podcast, and then interspersed are a couple of creator interviews, mm-hmm. interviews with uh, Matt Fraction, Mike Norton, and Gene Cole, and just three guys that have appeared on podcasts a few times that were able to give that perspective about what it's like to be a guest on a podcast as a, as a comic creator, and as well what podcasting is doing for the industry from their perspective and what the Internet is doing for comics fandom and the comic industry from their perspective. And so those are interspersed, as well as there's a little, a short article about the 24-hour podcast. Um, the Crankcast, which is hosted by Mike Norton, who's a DC exclusive artist who works on Green Arrow and Black Canary, and Chris Crank, who's a cover artist and letter. Uh, for their, I believe, second anniversary, they threw a 24-hour podcast where they podcasted for 24 hours straight and they were joined by the guys from around comics and Word Balloon and Comic Book Queers in Chicago. And there's a short article about what that experience was like. Yeah, I had the pleasure of meeting those guys last summer at the Wizard World Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a lot of fun to be on the panel with them. And, you know, I, I actually have been to Chicago a couple of times and sat in with the Around Comics guys and Met with Norton and Suntress and everything, and just great atmosphere. I I think that's one thing the that, and I think I said this to you when when you're interviewing me is that mm-hmm. I think the comic book podcast arena, you know, we're all so closely knit, and this is such a niche thing with comic books, huh. and uh, we're all in it to help each other out, which is really great to see. Well, yeah, it's it's an amazing community. I think more than anything else. Um, when I started listening to podcasts, certainly part of what had happened was I had moved to a new city and I, my old store wasn't around anymore. The couple of friends I had that read comics weren't around anymore. And podcasting really did help to fill that sort of communal void for me. And I know that it's great community for a lot more people, whether it's through the podcast itself or through the forums. Or an amazing thing is uh, Comic Geek speaking Around Comics both do their own conventions now. Mm-hmm. And I got to go to Around Comics convention last year, the Windy City Con, and it was great to meet you know, the, the guys who do the show, uh, the forum members that you end up chatting with on the forums, just other fans. It's something I talk about in the book, too, is that it seems like podcasting has created the sort of community and perhaps an even more expansive community 
than what existed primarily with fanzines and things a few years ago. And I think that's really amazing. Yeah, it's the marketing opportunities are just incredible for not only bigger companies like DC and Marvel and Dark Horse and Image, but also the indie comics scene. And, you know, you bring these artists and writers on, you really get to showcase their product. And, you know, it's really been a a grassroots thing, and they've really helped sell books, which is fantastic to see. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many comics I read now, and comics that I love, like Casanova and Hank Slash, Mm -hmm. that I would never have read if I hadn't heard about them on podcasts. I think that (laughs) there's more to be done through these uh, companies, too. There's so much more to showcase and even the bigger companies are starting to realize that. But, you I mean, Spider-Man's going to sell itself. What, what also helps is when a new artist comes on Spider-Man, they may not know who that is. And so the artist or writer can get more intimate with their audience. I mean, everybody knows who the characters are, but you may not know where they have come from before. And a, a great one who you have in this book is a guy like Matt Fraction, who has kind of been around the scene. But I didn't really get to know him until I heard his work uh, you know, through podcasting, and then I went out and and sought his work. Uh, you know, and and the, that has only helped his career, I, I think. And guys like oh, Seeley as well, yeah. Absolutely, and that's something that that Tim Seeley talked about very explicitly: is the opportunity to when it's, when you have trouble selling yourself as a name, when people don't necessarily know your name as well as they know uh, Ed McGinnis or Andy Cooper or something. If you can get on a podcast and sell your personality and Make you know? Would you, as a as a listener, when I hear someone on a podcast, if I really like them as a person, that definitely makes me want to check out their work that much more. And this is a unique opportunity, I think, to do that podcasting. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like guys like uh, CGS and around comics. I mean, and, and to every podcast, really. I mean, they they seek out artists and writers that they like and want to help mm-hmm. promote too. And, absolutely, and when, when absolutely. I when I hear like guys like you know Brian and Peter at CGS or or you know John Suntress, I mean they they really get excited about this guy's work. That makes me excited to go seek it out too. So it's yeah, it's great marketing. It's really what it is. It is, and a great example of that is uh, is this artist named Katie Cook, who I had met at a convention up here in the Twin Cities a few months before she actually appeared on Comic Geek Speak, and she has this terrific kind of soft cartoon influence style and they've in- featured her on CGS a couple of times. I was thrilled we've got a sketch from her that we're running in the book during the CGS interview. And to be able to to be able to find someone at a convention like that who maybe isn't so well known yet and then to be able to watch them become more well known by appearing on podcasts, that's really spectacular, I think. So let's run down the podcasts that are involved in the book. And I think they're all here on the blurb. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we have the Around Comics, Word Balloon, Quiet Panelologist at Work, Comic Book Queers, I Fanboy, Crankcast, My Show, the CCL, uh, Pipeline Podcast, Comic Geek Speak, and then the TuneIn Podcast. Is that basically all who's featured in this? Yeah, those are those are the podcasts that are most predominantly featured. Uh, again, there's a there's an index in the back with another 30 podcasts mm-hmm. that tells you where you can find them online, what their website is, what their RSS feed is, a little description of the show, so that if you after reading the book, if you want to get even more into podcasts, there's information on how to find some more great ones too. And you also have photos of the people that do the podcasts, like me, so you can see what my That's my right. looks like, right? That's right. Absolutely. And you are you are one handsome bastard. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. That's why I'm not in TV. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why I don't do video podcasts. 
<laughs> but that, I mean, that was that was something I wanted to do too. Is I mean, you sit there and listen to these shows, and you have no idea what uh, what the hosts look like. Mm-hmm. And so this is your chance to. And until I got, especially guys that I had to do phone interviews with, like choir panelologists over in England, uh, I I didn't have any idea what they looked like until I started getting pictures of them from the book. And that's you know, I think that's really kind of cool. Well, it's fun when you go to conventions because you kind of you know meet these guys and. Uh, you know, I remember when I went to Chicago the first time, and I walked in the comic book store where they do their show, and mm-hmm. I, I met Chris. And I'm like, "Oh my God, you look nothing like what I thought." And he said <laughs> the same thing to me. And now, when I hear him, I can see his face, and it, it just it makes it so much more fun and more intimate, like that. Right. And uh, it's, oh, yeah, no, I've had the exact same reaction. It's just like when you meet. It's the same thing as when you meet a radio DJ. They uh-huh. never look like the like the one that you have pictured in your head. Um, yeah. You also have a great cover by Mike Manley. Yeah, I I was really floored by it. It's it's a spectacular cover. We've got a few uh, sort of nondescript superheroes in silhouette with listening to podcasts, probably listening to this one right now, <laughs> um, flying off into the sun uh, or away from the sunset. I suppose it's really great. I, my favorite too. I particularly like this kind of a there's sort of a, a character to the right that looks like a Silver Age Batwoman almost. I right. really like that one. How did that uh, process come about? Did you just say, Mike, I need a cover and go for it, or did you have an idea of what you wanted? Um, well, I, I talked to John Morrow about the cover. We we got on the phone and just batted ideas around for a couple minutes and sort of came up with the idea of what we needed was, uh, you know, almost obviously was a superhero listening to a podcast, listening to an iPod-like device. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can't have an iPod. Right. An and, MP3 player. Right. right, it was an MP3 player. <laughs> I don't think iPod was even mentioned in the conversation. Um, we, we realized that's what we needed, and then uh, we sort of added around artists a little bit, and Mike uh, does a lot of work with Two Miles, and he had an idea and ran with it, and yeah, and we got the cover we have now, which again is, I think, just fantastic. And this book is slated to come out on May 20th. It's going to be in the March previews, right? That's right, yeah, so it could be in previews right now, as a matter of fact. And it's 120 pages, trade paperback, and it will retail for 15.95. Eric, I have to ask you, when are you going to start your podcast? When are you going to start mine? I don't know, I don't know. I split, let's, if there's a big clamor for it after the book comes out, maybe then. But right now, right now I sort of enjoy being the guy who talks about podcasts, so we'll see. Would you do a comic book podcast, or would you do something a little different? If I did my own? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I suppose I'd do a comic book podcast. Excellent. Well, welcome to the, you know, the quandary that is comic book podcasting. <laughs> so that's about it. Anything else you want to add? No, no. I think that covers it pretty well. I want to thank Stephen and Eric for coming on the tune in this week. I really appreciate them taking the time out of their busy schedule to join us and to really showcase two really wonderful books that are going to be coming out in the next few weeks. I am looking forward to both of these for sure. That'll about do it for the tune in this week. Be sure to check out my podcast, The Collected Comics Library, the comic book and trade paperback podcast, the only podcast solely dedicated to news, information, and reviews on all sorts of comic book collected editions. My contact information is Chris Marshall, and you can reach me at collectedcomicslibrary at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. You can always reach me through tomorrows.com. And of course, if you get a chance, leave me an iTunes review. We always appreciate those. So thanks for coming by the tune in, everybody. We'll talk to you next month.